Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Bug Eye's Rock Pop Rambles. I'm Angela from the band Bug Eye and this week my co-host is... Portal from the band Bug Eye. How's your week been? Uh, yeah, not too bad. Kind of waiting for a second lockdown, I think, but let's try and keep positive in the meantime. Yes. Might be the last one of these we do together. <laughs> well, I've got my fingers and toes crossed that we can go away at the weekend, mm-hmm. and I never thought I'd be so excited to go to Hastings. Yeah, me neither. I mean, but that is 2020, it's... isn't it? All I want is a fucking weekend in <laughs> yeah. Hastings. All up, yeah. All in the rain. Go. It's going to rain. To Hastings in the cold. Go to Smuggler's Caves that hasn't been updated since it opened in the 80s with those scary mannequins. Well, I'm cool with that. I'm absolutely cool with that. Fish and chips. Yeah. So ho- hopefully they don't they don't stop um, us from going away and having some fun. This week we're joined by filmmaker Laura Jean Marsh. Hi Laura, how you doing? Hey ladies, I'm doing good. Thank All the better for seeing you. Oh, thank you so much for for coming on the show. It's really it's really good to have you on. Yeah, so I, stu- I stumbled across Laura, which actually we'll talk about the many kind of connections that we possibly have mm-hmm. later. But um, I think it was through, was it the, the Beckdale Sound Test Instagram? I think they may have promoted some uh, the, the film of yours, your upcoming film. And then... Yeah, yeah. So I, I launched the, um, the page for my film, upcoming film on Instagram and it seemed to get quite a buzz quite early on and a few pages sort of reposted their excitement about it. Um, and that was one of the pages that did, yeah. And are you pals with them? Yes, yeah. yes. I know, I know Lisa from, from there. Yeah, she's, she's, she's a friend. She's really lovely and super helpful. She's one of the, Amazingly one of the good supportive. ones in, in life. Yeah. yeah. And she, she's the person who also introduced me to Vic Bain. Really? So, yeah. I think, I think she should have a job on the podcast just to like, get us guests because she's she's doing it without realizing network but, queen <laughs> she is she is so so laura yeah thank you for joining us on the show um and we're gonna get stuck into a little bit about your film in a moment but first of all i thought i would say that the theme of this show is actually quite closely tied to well very very relevant to Laura's film, we're talking about music from the noughties. And I'm going to talk about the beginning of the decade, and Paula's going to talk about the end. And Naturally. there you go. Isn't you that go. exciting? Uh, and I hope, I hope people are looking forward to this now, Angela. Oh, <laughs> edge of their seats watching. I know. Hopefully, there's some interesting facts in that. So well. if we're doing the beginning and you're doing the end, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that Laura's film covers everything else. <laughs> no pressure my end then I'm like this the filling in the sandwich so you are a filmmaker and you're actually incredibly talented there's a lot of things that you do um but should we start off by do you want to give us a bit of an overview of your the film that you've that was you've a made? bit kind thank you <laughs> no 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 it's absolutely true which which everyone will hear about in a moment and be a bit blown away Jack by of it. all trades um I'm making a feature film called Giddy Stratospheres um, and it is based in the noughties in the indie music scene in London. Uh, It's a story about two kind of star-crossed indie kid friends called Daniel and Lara 
um, and they are on a hellish sort of 24 hour mission to get to Lara's grandmother's funeral where she's got to read out a uh, poem that she wrote for her nan when she was 10 and they haven't slept. Uh, and the night before they went to see their favorite band, the Long Blondes and five other of their favorite bands. And without giving too much of the storyline away, it's uh, basically a bunch of memories keep coming back to Lara and Daniel's trying to trigger off her memories of the night before. Uh, and it's a story about grief uh, and friendship and how music unites the youth. <laughs> um, and I thought, what a better place to put it than in the noughties, which was my era for mm -hmm. rock and roll. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I was really, really excited to to see, you know, a film being made about that. There's so, there's so many movies about way, way back mm -hmm. decades. And this is this is one about a kind of a, a place that's that's really dear to my heart. Yeah. At, at the time and I loved the long blondes and I was um, a massive fan I forgot them. how good they were till I watched amazing. your trailer I know that's such a good song well, such good they, song they've been amazing um, I've got to say um, I, I, when I came up with the idea I, I wrote it over lockdown and uh, it kind of came to me in this weird wave of I don't know I was supposed to be making a different film during lockdown uh, which went out the window like a lot of creative stuff did as we were talking about earlier <laughs> um, I went for a run in the park and the long blondes came on my sort of indie playlist that I hadn't listened to for a while and uh, all these memories started rushing back to me of this scene that I was a part of that was very much central in this sort of group of bands that all knew each other and the long blondes were like this just they were so fucking cool and like I, they were lovely as well so I, I wrote the story and and it was all set sort of that that song um giddy stratospheres was like the lullaby to, to the story you know it's the one thing that unites daniel and lara they've got it tattooed on them they just absolutely love it love it and um and then i sort of realized i had to I had to contact the Long Blondes and chat to them about getting the, the rights. And I think I was worried that, because even though I used to kind of know them and I, I had, you know, none of us have really spoken to each other for years, I thought, shit, if they don't like the storyline, that's going to be a massive blow. Um, but they did. And they've been so supportive. And Kate um, Jackson is actually painting a, a portrait of somebody that's part of the storyline to be featured in the film. That's incredible. That's cool. Yeah, it's super cool. So it's like, you know, I feel really, without sounding cheesy, I feel really like, I don't know, it's just been a really dreamy roller coaster so far with them supporting it because it's it's made it a little bit more, um, I don't know, it would have been a shame if I'd have had to change the track. <laughs> it wouldn't have been quite the same. So how did you get into filmmaking? Um, so, um, well, music was always my thing. I came from a family of performers. Um, they were, my dad and my two older brothers were all musicians. Um, and I started a band, moved to London when I was 17. Uh, started a band and started a club night. And that's where I met a lot of other musicians that are sort of part of the same era as we're talking about. Um, and I guess, I went through quite a lot of sort of changes. My my band kind of went through lots of ups and downs. Um, we did have we did did some great gigs and we got some we went on some fun tours, but it was kind of a string of shitty events really. We ended up breaking up as bands do, and uh, you know during that time I was being cast in a few things and acting and really enjoyed that. And I started writing sort of stories. I started creating my own little worlds, and it just sort of became 
my obsession my new obsession was acting and that was a good 12 years ago now and since then I've had a career in tv and film and that's been my lo- my new love I say new but it's been a while <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you suppose was it like a sort of conscious decision to kind of move away from music or did it just feel quite natural that obviously with the band split up that you not lost interest, but sort of, I don't know, the stars aligned and acting just took well, up more I, time. Well, it's a tricky one, actually, because I recently had an interview about my band, and my band was brought up, and I think I, I, I'm, I'm an anecdote machine, <laughs> and I think I, I got a little bit too, dis, I dissed the music industry a little bit too much, so you'll have to <laughs> hold me back a little bit, but it was, um, I'm sure you're going to tell me what you, your kind of place was during that time. But at the time I was in this band, I was 19. Uh, we, was, we were with 80s Matchbox Beeline Disasters Management. I don't know if you remember them. But yeah, I yeah. Uh, and we, we just uh, had a constant string of different managers and different mistakes being made. Um, one of the mistakes that was kind of like laughable now but not so much at the time was like we did we had a sold out uh industry gig at um where was it dublin castle and uh that night we were like so who was there like what what labels were there and they were like oh well look, tonight was the enemy awards so everyone was there oh. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so it was like you know we, we we supported some great bands we went on tour around europe and we had a lot of fun but we kept kind of going our our management kept trying to sell us as a major label band and we were really just like a little indie band um and we were told repeatedly that no one would sign a female fronted rock band in the uk um which wasn't very nice to hear when you're 18 19. um Mm. yeah so yeah it was just a string of of mistakes and i think when i started sort of acting in a few small films i was like it just felt like a nice, exciting new venture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I had enough, I think, of being the band leader of this band where everything yeah. kept going wrong. I think I just mm. I think I just had enough, basically. Yeah. And uh the film and T V industry was just so much fun. I was like, This is my new my new home. No, that's 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 fair enough. And I, I think every band has got some really horrific stories. Mm-hmm. Um, of of the industry you know in recent years you know speaking to a management company who basically said oh well we've already got a female band um so oh you can only have one of those because they're all the same you know and it's like Um, you would never say i've already got a male band to a male band would you i mean i mean so i i mean i made the decision quite quite sort of early on when i came back to to music that um I was just going to manage things myself because at least I know where I'm at mm-hmm. and, you know, I don't actually need a manager unless they are going to open doors. doors and do something. But in my experience, they've been bloody shocking. I mean, in 1999, we supported the Cranberries at mm. Wembley and Amazing. our manager didn't tell a single label that we were doing yeah. it. Didn't send a press release to anyone. Didn't do no. anything. And it's, you know, it's, it's it's just one of those things that I suppose for me, I can think, you know, and feel better about that or whatever. I don't. It was an experience and we totally were not ready for anything no, big no. to happen at that point. But it is, it, I think it was, it was a real wake up call to me that if I was ever going to be in a band again after that, that I would manage my own 
career. I think realistically as well, you have to be in a band because you love it. Because yeah. it does take up a lot of your time, a lot of your energy, a lot of your thought processes, your evenings, your weekends. And you've got to lo- like really love the people you're doing it with because you're going to spend a lot of time with yeah. them. I think in my case as well, I loved my bandmates. You know, my my best, I was, I was best man at my guitarist's wedding. You know, we were we were like a family, but I think I was just too young. Um, and when you are, a, I, I didn't run away from home when I was 17, but I, I kind of did a bit of a runner to London from the West Country. And I was quite, you know, quite lost as a lot of people are when they're that age. I didn't have any money. And I was a bit like, when somebody told me that there was a possibility that I could get this major label deal, I was like, yes, please. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and of course, then you go into these meetings, they're like, no, there aren't any female fronted rock bands in the UK. No one buys that. And I'm like, right. So that, you know, and after a few times, it just gets a bit like, well. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah, really and like, as much that. as I love my band, I think it just became a little bit too much for my little, my little cranium, to be honest. Yeah, and I think, I think things were very different back then as well. Like self-releasing was actually so much harder. Like now, mm-hmm. obviously, you can get things on all of the digital platforms and no one's really buying. I mean, people are still buying CDs, yeah. but it's in decline. So it's like you can do digital releases and you can have a bit more control of uh, of your career, which I don't, that, that wasn't really an easy thing to do back then. So you were reliant on um, these uh, bloody, I wanted to say something really foul then, but I won't, I'll show bite my tongue. <laughs> these rather pleasant music industry uh, execs. It's a conscious decision, isn't it? Mm. To surround yourself with good people and to not waste your time with with people that are kind of have negative energy, I suppose. Yes. I suppose that can be said in all situations for sure. And I think that's something you don't realise until you get a little older. In my case, for sure, you know, you get to choose choose your peeps yeah. and like people that support you, you support them. And uh, good vibes just it helps you grow and move forward. I sound like a right hippie, don't I? But it's true. No, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. I completely agree with yeah. you. But you, I love that. you. Your music's fantastic. So congratulations. Oh. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Just a shout out to Reckless Yes, our label, who are, you know, they're, they're the good bunch. One of the good eggs. With. The good eggs. The, the good, good eggs. eggs. Um, good yeah. Eggs. So um, more about Reckless Yes a little bit later. But I thought you mentioned that you were in a band, Screaming Ballerinas. That's um, true, yeah. Yeah. So I would really love to play one of uh, their songs right now. Would that be would that be okay? Do you- the one that everyone well the one that got us on a tour we had our own tour in Italy just off the back of MySpace. Do you remember MySpace? Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, we stuck three tracks up and the main track, well the first track was Crucify and there was another one called Shit. Fire in the hat, fire in my hands. I can't remember. Um, that's terrible, isn't it? Um, but there was three tracks, and the Italians bloody love female-fronted indie rock music. <laughs> so we got to go out and do this really fun tour, and it was great. So Crucify, I I owe that all to. I think everyone loved that. That one song was like our, I don't know, it was our little ticket to a little bit of success and mm-hmm. a bit of crowd surfing and. You know, so that one I reckon if you want to play that. Okay, let's let's give that a listen then.
crucify. Really great. Do, do you miss do you miss being in a band? Do you miss being in a band? Um, well, you know what? There's been moments like uh, where I, I like my big my biggest brother is a drummer. He plays drums for Lana Del Rey. Um, he was in a band and he he's been in many different music outfits. Uh, and a couple of years ago, I saw him side stage at Glastonbury Festival. And uh, it was one of those moments where I've literally never been more proud of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I, I do occasionally when I'm in those situations where I see this incredible live show. And I just think I remember what the buzz was like. I mean, it would never I've never had that kind of opportunity. But, you know, when you see an amazing gig and you see someone, you know, in, in a band, you kind of remember you want to just sort of run out and go like, oh in front of the crowd and, and remember what that high is like yeah. but if I'm actually honest with you I get that same buzz from making films now um and that's no exaggeration you know I think I don't know if you guys agree being creative but if you're creative in your heart you know you can kind of transfer that buzz into whatever you're doing and in, in my case acting creating writing making movies is, is where I, I feel that that vibe now and do you feel any kind of like nostalgia listening to old tracks that you've done? Yeah, and I'll be honest with you girls, like during writing this film, I relived a lot of old memories. Some of them are quite heartbreaking. Like I lost a couple of pals back then because, um, you know, with those kind of uh, intense music scenes, there's always hedonism that goes along with it. Um, and remembering the band, remembering some of the moments which were really great. I definitely feel... There is some heartbreak there for sure. Um, and I haven't thought about it for bloody ages, yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's weird, it's through like, lockdown's been, I don't know if, if it's been the same for you guys, but for me, it was like an opportunity to write this, but also, you know, feeling loads of old sort of emotions towards all, the, all these old stories that I had that I hadn't thought about. So yeah, definitely, definitely been feeling nostalgic for sure. How, how do you go about writing a film and then actually all the logistic planning. That's like a big topic to answer, but yeah. In this, using Giddy Stratospheres is, is an example. I wrote out all my scenes into chunks uh, and my characters. And then, you know, I decided different story arcs, how they were gonna kind of weave through each other and then where, where I needed to get to, but that's all in, in actual text. And then yeah. I do do my little doo-doo, sorry. Um, I do. <laughs> I do like my little David Lynch drawings and like, you know, all these like, anything that makes me feel in the vibe of it, like the mood of the film or whatever. Um, and I try not to get too distracted by what you what you have to do, you know? And then the next step is that having the right, having the right team around you, like we were talking about good eggs, yeah. is that if, you're, if you've got the right team around you and I, I'm really, I think I'm quite good at picking my eggs. <laughs> Um, you know, having really supportive, really sweet, talented people who who support your vision is that they will give you advice to make it make sense. <laughs> and like, well, you can't do that because you're going to have to do this first, and this is going to, and then, but they're not they're not letting your your idea disappear, if you know what I mean. So they're still supporting you, and they're not being sorry. I don't know if I can swear on this. Can I swear? But they're not being they, they're not being cunty about it. I love it. Go to town. Zero cunts. Um, because you know, I think all of us creative sorts, we can get our heads 
like we, we can get a little bit too uh, jaded we can get a little bit too um set in our ways so I, I try and keep people around me that give me advice but also respect like my ideas yeah and then the next thing so I went to my DOP um Jack who's this like a mate his name's Jack Miller and he's a great DOP and he's quite young and enthusiastic but he's a real whiz kid like I think he's going to be a really really a big name uh and he just comes up with most incredible ideas to support my ideas <clears throat> and we uh storyboarded the festival came up with the ideas for uh the promo trailer and then we we started discussing the feature film but he he's great it's all about having the right people around you basically yeah yeah of course cool. oh well okay should we i think maybe it's time for a bit more new music and I mentioned Reckless Yes earlier, so do you mind if I go first with my new my new track? Take it away. It's, it's not a brand new track because it came, but it did come out this year, so I think it kind of qualifies for it. And it's it's by a band called um, God No, and the track is called Canada Goose. And the members of this band, it's it's almost like a super band. So you've got. Um, members from the band Cable, Mighty Kids, Pet Crow and Little Courage. And this came out via Reckless Yes. And one of the members is also one of the co-founders of Reckless Yes Records. It's Pete's band. There we go. And I've been meaning to play this song for a while because I really, really love it. So um, expect something that's kind of got a massive nod to a bit of Sonic Youth, Talking Heads, My Bloody Valentine. Um, yeah, it's kind of noise, pop, post rock whatever these weird genre tags that you want to put on things but uh you decide for yourself but here it is God No with Canada Goose. 
um, I don't know. I think that had, you know, the discordant chords of Sonic Youth and a bit of Ruka Salt vocals there. Paul is laughing at me because we were discussing this track a minute ago. She said that and I thought, I'm having that. We're going to yeah, chime yeah. in before she gets to say Sorry, it. I, I very much agree with the Ruka Salt sort of reference there. Thank you for listening to the show today. Oh, that sounds like the end, doesn't it? That sounds like the end. It's not the end at all because I'm about to talk about, as everyone it. knows, I ramble so much and I've drunk beer and I really need to burp, but I'm trying not to. Go um, on, give us a good, give us a good burp. I, I can't, I can't do it. I'm, I'm so disgusting off mic, but you know, <laughs> mic, I, try, I try, I try my best, although I descend into potty mouth quite quickly. We all do. So we're talking about um, the noughties mm-hmm. on this on this episode, and I'm I'm going to tell you a little bit about. The year 2000, so long ago, so long ago now. Um, it's 20 I mean, years ago. Stupidly, but I put, because Julia, my partner, glanced over my notes, she said, oh, it's strange you've just mentioned it was the end of the decade and not the century. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's probably a bigger thing to mention, isn't it? That it was the, Potentially. You know, the start of the new century. Yeah, Potentially. So, so here we go with my scribbled notes here saying, it was the end of century and the start of a new one, a new chapter. New Year's Eve in the UK, and there's excitement everywhere in the way that only a new decade and century, mm-hmm. not that any of us would have experienced that one, um, can bring. Uh, you know, resolutions, mm-hmm. oh, it's a new start. Why do we always think that, actually, for, you know, at the end of a year, or a decade, or a century, that suddenly, miraculously, the next day, everything's different? We all get to, like, wipe the slate clean. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? It's really bizarre, isn't it? Because like, August isn't the time to make a change either. If you're an arsehole, you're still going to wake up as one, aren't you, really? <laughs> I murdered someone last week, but we can forget about that. Yeah, exactly. The dickish behaviour, the person, you know, that you kind of, yeah. Anyway. What happens when the 25th of December stays there? Yeah, exactly. I'm pretty sure that if you murder anyone on the last day of the year, it doesn't count. No, but you could do anything. It's like The Purge. That film, mm-hmm. The Purge, you could do anything on the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, good. Well, anyway, welcome to the year 2000. <laughs> um, the UK had a Labour, Labour gov- government in. Tony yep. Blair was at the helm. He was. Uh, the Millennium Dome. What a beautiful thing. Um, it was officially opened by the Queen. And uh, that, that was before the, the New Year's. Well, actually, I think it opened on New Year's, didn't it? I have no idea. Um, well, apparently it was supposed to be like the UK's premier kind of, you know, premium sort of tourist mm-hmm. attraction. It cost over 800 million to make and was very much seen as a laughing stock. I mean, does anyone remember what was in there? I, all I remember is there was that human, yeah, giant, giant human, human body. body that was the most boring I remember that. Big body person, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't actually go to it, to be honest. Anyway, the project and exhibition was a highly political um, thing. And, I mean, essentially it attracted barely half the 12 million customers that it was predicted to have and was deemed an absolute failure. Um, Yeah, and, uh, you know, all the original exhibition elements were sold or dismantled 12 months after they'd been installed. And apparently that was the original plan. But there was also, in the year 2000, the um, theft of the uh, diamonds from the Millennium Dome. Well, the attempt to do that in a speedboat. It was all very James Bond, but the police foiled them. How do I not remember that? Yeah, I don't know any of this. This sounds like you're making it up. I'm really not. I think the reason why I knew is because my parents live um, lived in, well, my dad still lives there, in Canning Town, mm-hmm. which is just sort of, um, there's like the River Lee 
and yeah the, yeah and it's just yeah. it's not far from there so any kind of news about that you know obviously oh did you hear about the attempted coming, theft because obviously that is exactly how my mum mm -hmm. speaks speedboats as well speedboats is super exciting i know but it was um yeah they didn't didn't quite manage it but uh, it was also the year that Tony Blair received a hostile reception during a speech at the Women's Institute where he was heckled and slow clapped by all the members. And uh, essentially, this was a massive turning point for Labour in the, the year 2000, not in a good way. Uh, he arrived late to that, that um speech and he began his speech by ticking off his list of achievements i can't i amazing mm -hmm. and uh yeah and people just were really really not impressed at all um and he'd, he'd been going on about saying you know i've spent a long time trying to work very hard on the health service and the ten thousand strong audience just began to slow clap him because it was just like well that's that's a load of shit isn't it really um yeah and it was it has become and is noted on Wikipedia. Main source of research. Hand clap um, has become a symbol of the, the growing discontent of the government at that time. And it was the beginning of the end for the Labour Party. Yeah, so what else happened in 2000? I do promise this is a music show. It's yeah. not about... History lesson. It's not a history lesson about the Labour Party. Um, <laughs> so... Catherine Hartley and Fiona Formwell became the first British women to reach the South Pole. Okay. Which I think is pretty good. Yeah, on a not so good note, but but kind of on a good note, um, Harold Shipman is sentenced to life imprisonment after found guilty of murdering 15 patients in Greater Manchester between 1995 and 1998. So a bit shit for the people he killed, but good that justice was served, right? So A bit shit. A bit shit. Okay, it's very shit. Shipman. I'm from... I'm from <laughs> Sorry, I could not. I could not say Shipman. <laughs> you can, you can, you can come back on the show. The Tate Modern Art Museum. Also, I can't even speak. The Tate Museum. Tate Mod. Oh my God, the Tate Modern Art Museum. That big thing on the Thames. Yeah. Um, open to the public that year as well. I forgot about that. It was the Queen Mother's hundred. If it was her birthday, she was a hundred. And that's what she got, the Tate Modern. <laughs> that was her present. <laughs> Cheers, Lizzie. Here you go. Here's a big box with some art in it. You'll love this. <laughs> Your majesty. I mean, <laughs> no one can find their way around, but we'll, we'll yeah. take you around. There's just it's a great, great big hall that everyone goes, ooh, <laughs> goes to the it's shop water, and then waterworks thing. <laughs> waterworks? What is it? It's like a fountain. Um, it was also the year of the UK fuel protests. I don't know if you remember this because we were in a band touring and 90% of um, service stations and petrol stations were closed. They had no petrol. Yeah. So you couldn't get fuel anywhere. I feel like that was a lot less long ago. There's, More recent, uh, you know that's what, what I'm trying to say. I mean, I'm, I'm going to skip to the chase as well because I've got a really long list here and this okay. is not like important necessarily. You know, to I mean, Steve Redgrave, you know, did win gold medal at the Olympics. He'd won some before, so that's not really that exciting. Um, and there was a shitload of other things that happened that year. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's the year 2000. And it was also a great year for British acts that finally started to dominate the charts again. I say that, but then Britpop had happened the previous mm -hmm. decade. So I don't quite understand my own notes here. 
Oh, that's just an opinion. So maybe, for maybe sure. at the end of nineteen, like the nineties, it all gone a bit American or something. I don't know. Yeah, it was but, a bit, yeah, a bit dull. Yeah. There's a lot of American kind of Datsuns-esque kind of stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't mind them, but it did feel like there was a lot of the same stuff going on until the old Strokes came yeah. along, and made a noise. That's that's true. Um, I mean, the year saw how competitive the industry had become in the 1990s, actually, with a numerous sort of number of new releases out every week. Um, the year 2000 holds the record for the most number one singles in one particular year so really? the industry was how many just notes on a postcard guys <laughs> Two, 2000 for the year 2000 <laughs> let's just say that i don't have that fact <laughs> gosh it's so strange isn't it just such a coincidence in 52 weeks <laughs> it's not even 2000 days in the year the year was particularly successful for robbie williams britney spears moby M- Eminem, Travis, and the Beatles, who had the best-selling album of the year. For real? Yeah, it was another one of those greatest hits uh, of the Beatles. Yes. It was the number ones, wasn't it? The yes, yes, that, that, yeah. yeah. Look, she's she's good at this. She's she just leaving it. off my notes. <laughs> um, but the year started out, you know, um, with the fabulous <laughs> Westlife at number one. Wonderful. Yeah, and they would continue to to be a a, a big deal. In that year, and do, do you know what the name of the single was that started the year as number one? I don't know. I bet they were stood up for the key change. That was their thing, wasn't it? Oh, they did, didn't they? They did all be sitting, sitting down, down. down on the stools, but they but they'd all go up in different times, and then the last one, yeah. The, the choreographer of that probably suggested that to take the piss, and they were like, "That's such a good idea." So they had to do it for done. every performance. It's all they had. It was the only move they had. Um, but also, did you know um, that? Sharon Osbourne managed the Smashing Pumpkins. No, not yeah, yeah. It's I, I've got a fact here which I just I did not know that. So Sharon Osbourne quits in the year two thousand as manager of Smashing Pumpkins after only three months. In a press release, she announces that she had to resign for medical reasons. Billy Corgan was making me sick. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine those two getting on. No, like, no. no, way no. too hot-headed. I think quite unfairly, the noughties have had recent articles about um, landfill. Yeah, yeah. there was that thing going around right. on Twitter, wasn't there? I've been asked about it a lot since this film, yeah. about how I feel about it. But I was, you know, I feel like being friends with so many bands that were successful at the time and watching them all perform, it's really shit. Yeah, I think hearing that because if you were there, then you you wouldn't say you wouldn't say that because it was so exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you know, I don't think there was landfill indie in the noughties. No, because actually in the noughties, also, that's also like what annoys me about it. Sorry, but it really annoys me because I think just because there isn't music like that now doesn't mean that didn't happen. You know, it's like just because people move on from something doesn't mean that that the scene wasn't a thing, you know, it was really exciting. It's just the media just like to stir up trouble when they haven't got anything else to kind of talk about. Incredible <laughs> albums that came out in the noughties and, and so many really influential bands. Mm-hmm. And actually I remember in the nineties, um, and I really do need to find these articles about this, but I remember a similar thing of people slagging off 
stuff that had happened in the 80s yeah. saying oh it was a bit of a nothing decade music wise I mean and now we look back and we sing its praises and you know I, d- I just think we always have to look back at something and say it was shit Negativity. to justify where we are now yeah <laughs> justify what you want to sort of put yeah. on for dinner next you know it doesn't mean that dinner the day before wasn't really tasty with loads of good tunes no, but I also exactly. think what's one person's landfill is another person's like greatest track ever it's so yeah, subjective. Exactly. Like that's what and music you, I is. I don't know if you guys ever were you into the yeah 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 massively yeah yeah yeah. Um, so you did they, there. <laughs> sorry, they were they were so. I mean, anybody that saw that fucking band live during yeah. their, the height of their career mm-hmm. to say that that's landfill, you're having a laugh. It's like yeah, some it's of the most nonsense. exciting. Some of the most exciting gigs I've yeah. ever been to. And I've been I've, to a lot. Like. Um, were during that period of time so anybody from vice magazine that's dissing them now it's like you weren't there then mate you know that album is still top 10 one of my favorite yeah. albums they put out and i actually remember their ep that they put out before that um uh, before that yeah mm. exactly which was great and wasn't it amazing it's not and you can't find it like i i had it on cd and it's not on spotify and like I'm, I, I think i need to try and find it and do you remember that CD with the like the necklace? Do you remember yes, it? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. And yeah. I just, I, it was just so exciting that I think my favourite song on that was Miles Away. Do you remember that? Miles, yeah. Miles Away. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was like, I was what re- is this amazing music? Totally it's, changed my it life. Was so refreshing. We saw them at the Astoria, yeah, and great. actually, I I can say this. I'm really proud. I organised their after show party for that gig oh, at the Astoria. What was yeah? that like? Uh, lots of music industry execs with the band sitting in the corner and me bringing them drinks, sort of, because um, I was quite young, so mm-hmm. I wanted it to be something really cool, but then there was just lots of, like, congratulatory patting themselves on the back, music industry people mm-hmm. there. So it wasn't that exciting, but it was the first one I'd organised. Oh, no disrespect to you, yeah. but I was expecting, like, I, I went along to it because you'd organised it, obviously, yeah. and I was expecting it to be, like, really amazing, super wild out there, and I was just like, it's a bit tame, really, isn't it? Well, with the label, like, yeah. I've met, met Carano a couple of mm-hmm. times. I can't say we're friends, but she always seemed really sort of quite, like, careful about yeah. how yeah. she behaved and, like, not what you'd... I think I... I expected her to be super rock and roll, mm-hmm. but she seemed almost super professional and very yeah. like careful about how she's acting and how she's behaving when she's not on stage. I don't know if you found that. Yeah, no, 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 totally. And what what I found actually was all of those after show parties at Universal where I used to work. It's like you have the industry after show parties, and then you have Rude. the ones where the bands yeah. go off to their hotel or we go off to a club and that's actually the, mm-hmm. the unofficial and better party because you just have to stick to all these guideline things yeah, and it's not really about You're with your band, boss at so the end of the day, aren't you? You don't want to be... me saying stuff, but yeah. Talking about the year 2000, uh, there are many, many great albums that came out. Um, and I, I'm going to talk a, a bit about my favourite album mm-hmm. from the year, which is not necessarily a new artist, but there were loads I could could have picked from but um talking about the 90s you know you had granddaddy released an album yola tango blonde Ooh. redhead who did melody of certain Dam- damaged lemons which was fantastic you had badly drawn drawn boys debut album came out that year peaches oh what an album mm. what an yeah absolute peaches of peaches Incredible. what an amazing album that was mm-hmm. 
Sonic Youth with NYC Ghosts and Flowers mm-hmm. came out. Um, and there were just there were just so I mean Coldplay parachutes. Um, whatever you think of Coldplay now, that their first album was actually really quite beautiful. And I remember, and I think it's not very cool to say this, and I know a lot of my friends won't like me hearing like like hearing me say this, but that that album was so exciting at the time, and it was so many beautiful songs on it for sure. And I'm sure I'll be shot saying that, but it's I think well, it was it was actually quite a political album about climate change and and things like this where no one else was really singing about it so you know there was a few songs like that i just genuinely never got them and i'm not saying that because i think i'm cooler than anyone else or i'm more hip than anyone else i just i never really got coldplay i liked that album i didn't really feel any of those other things but also travis um had an album out so this the album that i've picked and i'm not going to talk too much about it really um was PJ Harvey's Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea, which uh, probably her most pop album. It was her fifth studio album and was released on the 23rd of October that year, my mum's birthday. Oh. Yeah. And it was her second major commercial success. Um, remind first... me, Angela, remind me what singles were on that album? Uh, singles on that one, uh, 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 there was Good Fortune. My good fortune. Mm-hmm. There was the yeah, there was the album featured duet as well with Radiohead frontman Tom York, uh, the mess we're in, mm-hmm. which was which was yeah. really really lovely. Um, and he also sung backing vocals and played a bit of keyboard on um, one line and, and beautiful feeling. Um, so yeah, that's so. What else was on on the album? I've lost I've lost my place. So okay, so she started work on that album in 1998 while shooting a film as an actress for How Hartley in New York. She felt inspired by the city and wrote several songs. Some of them ended up on the following album. Um, But in 1999, she chose um, to live there for sort of nine months. However, she insisted in interviews, it was not my New York album. Songs were also written in London and at her home in Dorset. I never so, knew she was an actress as well. Yeah, I, I did not discovered know that. that she's she's been in a couple of things as well, oh. some sort of arty films as well. Yeah, she's she's sort look. of dabbled in a few things. And the, the great thing about PJ Harvey is she she's not just she's almost like a sort of performance artist, mm-hmm. isn't she? It's not just about the music; yeah. it's about the whole experience with it. And she did that um, that performance art piece thing in Somerset House. I want to say a couple of years ago. Can't remember what it's called. Should have put that in research notes. But she did something at Somerset House, which was more of an art it. piece. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I should have gone as well, but I didn't. Um, but PJ Harvey actually confessed in Mojo magazine in 2008 that uh, the stories from the City, stories from the Sea album didn't actually satisfy her. Um, I felt like I got lost around that record. I wanted to try writing lots of perfect pop songs. It's great to set you know one self project Mm -hmm. but they also have to ring true to your heart and soul pop music isn't where my heart is at but this just shows what an incredible talent she has because like as i mentioned Mm -hmm. this was her most pop album um it's it certainly gained a huge amount more fans it was very very different from from her early stuff Mm -hmm. if you listen to it but it just shows that you know she's just got this fantastic talent and range that if she wants to write a pop song she can Mm -hmm. But she could... she's got that same thing as we were talking about when somebody concentrates just on what they want to create 
and because they believe in what they're doing everyone else does as well i don't know if you guys are fans of bjork yes yes she's like my probably one of my favorite humans ever um but i i feel like with her as well it's like she can do no wrong because she's always creating what's what's what she believes in and you know she doesn't kind of it's the same with pj i think she's got that same thing that everyone buys into because she's keeping to her true to herself it's like you just know that they both look back at their career i mean i I can't say for certain but i would feel like they they look back at their careers and the output and there's nothing that makes them cringe or wish they did differently it's like i went for it i had this idea maybe other people didn't like it but well i'm happy and i'm proud of what i've achieved and i guess if you can look back and say that that's bloody amazing man no i agree i agree and the song good fortune is about falling in love with a special person in a 2001 issue of Q magazine, Harvey said, I wanted everything to sound as beautiful as possible. I want this album to sing and fly and be full of reverb and lush layers of melody. I want it to be my beautiful, sumptuous, lovely piece of work. And I think it was. Oh, that's so gorgeous. How gorgeous is that, that she can put that into words like that? It's so dreamy. And, uh, I mean, the album, you know, in 2001, so just, just jump forward a year a year later and she wins the mercury music prize and that's that was her fifth album that she'd released Is that the second time she won um it well? i think it was the second time she won it her other okay. sort of big commercial success which i hate saying commercial success because it kind of makes you know she's made money off of other records it yeah. just wasn't like a fucking top 10 hit which it wasn't like mtv2 were playing all those tracks constantly on repeat an <laughs> album it disappeared very very quickly mm-hmm. and mm-hmm be working in Greg's the next year because you haven't made any money. Do you know what I mean? It's like, um, nothing wrong with working in Greg's. Vegan sausage rolls, like them. Banging. Really nice. Banging. I'm sure you get them for free if you, Ooh. um, yeah, probably get, that's probably a perk, isn't it? When you, when you sign your contract, some people oh, get pensions, you I'd get vegan sausage rolls. I'd be the size of a frigging house. <laughs> They're great when you've got a hangover. So much. Are you guys vegan? Huh? Uh, I'm, no, I'm, veggie. I'm, I'm pescatarian, so I eat fish. Um, but yeah, I'm not. Yeah, not not really ever been a, a fan of meat. So it's it's not even through. I'd love to say it was through like protecting the little animals, but um, mm. just never really liked the taste of meat. And particularly processed meat, just it's the texture more for me that I don't like. I'm ve- I've been vegan for nine years now. I'm just like pure grass. And that's it. <laughs> and vegan sausage rolls from Greg. Well, it's it's got so much better. Isn't it? I remember trying to be vegan. Um, probably around the year 2000 yeah, and actually actually my, um no well done for bringing that around <laughs> yeah yeah i think i think i think i think so. no I, that's actually facts and i actually i think um no the year 2000 wasn't when i was with annie i was with someone else but it was a couple of years later mm-hmm. it was in the 2000s it was so in the, it it was in the, the scope of this show and um uh, my girlfriend at the time Annie was she was um, a hunt saboteur, so she was hardcore vegetarian. But then she also decided to be vegan and have a raw diet. And I don't think I've ever been so angry in my life. Eating, oh God. eating I just I felt in such bad mood. I was just like, I just can't. It's probably your body's shedding toxins. Yeah, no, you need you need even you know I'm a vegan, but I still need a hot hot plate of food. Something. <laughs> Not gonna catch me just like nibbling on dandelions of an evening um, it's a nice bit of celery you got there cool yeah. dinner <laughs> it's all i eat is celery 
The thought of the thought of Rivetas. I bloody love Rivita. Make me feel ri- physically sick. I like Rivita. Rivitas are just so dry. Have you ever tried to eat them without like like I think I, when I was drunk once I had this competition with someone where I had to eat loads of Rivitas, but they're just you can't. I can it's eat like, dry, no problem. It's like cardboard. Okay, okay, when we go away at the weekend, Rivita that's the drunken band challenge. How many Rivitas? We're gonna have to send it to me. <laughs> we'll have to give it a go. Um, I reckon Kerry's gonna win. Kerry, yeah. why? I don't know. I just think she'll go into the zone. I think I think Grace will win. You'll just get bored and go. I'm going to smoke. Yeah, probably. Yeah. You need to all have a pack each, and you have to just get a pack. Through no them. way, man. Like, and you're not allowed to take swigs of anything. No beer. No, no wine. Nothing. Nah, mate. That Mouth probably nice. turns to dust and crumbles to nothing. Which is floor. You've got no teeth left because you've just given up with the dryness. <laughs> Whoever actually created Rivitas is is the biggest kind of marketing guru ever for creating something so boring. Do you think his name's something like Nigel Rivita? Probably. Possibly. Nigel, I actually yeah. don't mind Rivitas. The hatred. I mean, I wouldn't eat the whole packet dry. Fine, but... stuff. You gotta have stuff on it, though, right? Yeah, or do you, you have them on their own? I could have them on their own, not a whole pack. But <laughs> okay, I'm getting looks now. Carry on with your story, love. Um, anyway, the album. I'm coming to the end. Right, the album spent 17 weeks on the UK albums chart and was certified platinum in the UK and in Australia. And is gem gen. I can't even speak. It is generally regarded as one of her best works. I don't, I don't think it is her best album, but I think it's, up there. it's, it's pretty bloody cool. Yeah, I, I love the album anyway, but I love PJ Harvey. But um, yes, yeah, so that was PJ Harvey. And now I've got a year 2000 quiz. What's the prize for you? The prize is a packet of Rivitas. Woo! Game on, let's go. When when did Pulp release the year 2000? That's all. 1995? I've got a guess if she's wrong. You can have a guess anyway and I'll tell you who's right. 94. Paula was right of 95, but I think she cheated. Okay, so in oh. the year two... <laughs> I did not, I got a point. Thank you. You get one point. I'm, I'm best, on the way to my Ravitas. Best live act at the Brit Awards in the year 2000. Who do you think that was? Uh, Best live act in 2000 is probably something not cool. <laughs> I think it's something like obvious, like... Oasis or Blur. Not that they're not cool. I love them. But is it somebody really obvious that's, like that? That's 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 still cooler than what the actual answer oh, is. Because I was going to go for Muse, so it's definitely not Muse. Muse, no, Muse weren't. No. It was Steps. Ah! Tragedy! <laughs> like, out of all the bands, anyone. Fair enough, steps, I mean, come on. Steps for the best. Yeah. Are the three people sitting here who own Steps CDs? Have you seen them live many times? No, I've not seen them live. I do have Steps CD. <laughs> okay, who won? We know that PJ Harvey uh-huh. won the Mercury Music Prize in 2001, but who won it in the year 2000? E.L. Bing. Oh, I know this. Is Your... it Eagle Eye Cherry? Nope. Bing. Is it different class? Nope. Fuck. Who is it? Badly Drawn Boy. Oh. Oh, that fella. Good for him. Okay. This is the last one, mm-hmm. promise. Um, what was expected to cause global chaos on New Bing. Year? 
2000. Well, not changing. New Year, 1999, New Year's Eve. Is the date changing? <laughs> <laughs> the rise beta pandemic. No, it was Y2K. Yeah. The infamous millennium bug was expected to cause global chaos with fears that aeroplanes would fall out of the sky, missiles would cause fire by accident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All simply by the resetting of the dates on a computer at midnight. The end. What was supposed to happen? We were all going to turn into turtles or something. What was going to happen? Well, it was, no, it was just like, you know, hellfire and everything would just stop. Apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it was anything that was controlled by computers, just, like banking systems, missiles, everything. Yeah, it was just all going to implode. That that was the year 2000, folks. Just so you know. What a fun Woo! year. Woo! Should we listen to some more music? Yeah. So this week I have got a track called Laundry by the artist called Nuxview. So that was Nux with Laundry. Um, I chose that track, I think, predominantly because 
I love her voice. I think it's beautiful. And I really, really, maybe it's the bassist in me, but I really like the bass in that track. Um, give it a listen. We'll post links below. And also check out the video because it's super amazing. Obviously, without giving too much away, no spoilers here. But is there a moment in the film that you're really proud of that you've written that you can't wait to shoot? It's like, that is the moment. Yeah. That... I mean, I what's so exciting is that I can't give away what songs that I've got for it. Yeah. But, you know, it's very important to me. And I really appreciate that you, your support because it is an era that I think people feel very like they own it. So I'm very aware that I can't, I don't want to let anyone down. So that's definitely there's a little tinge of anxiety attached to it because I'm like, you know, I don't want to fuck it up, but I do feel like I've got, I've got this. Um, And there are moments in it. I'm very like aware that this isn't a documentary about indie music. It is a storyline that I'm hoping that people can really relate to um, because it's about how music holds us together when everything else is falling apart. Uh, And that's definitely an experience that I, I've been through um, being a lost little urchin in London and feeling like my family were my friends. Um, so yeah, there are a few moments. I mean, there's a lot of dark stuff in the film. Um, some of my biggest influences, uh, filmmaker-wise, I don't know if you guys know Lynn Ramsey. Do you know Lynn Ramsey? Yeah, I'm not great. She made a film in the '90s called um, More Than Color, but she also made um, We Need to Talk About Kevin. And- oh yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she made this film with Samantha Morton in the '90s that I've, you know, like sometimes when I'm making something, I'm I, I have like a kind of it's not that I'm copying it, but I'm like okay, I need to remember how she pulled that off, which is this thing where she she gets the hedonism of of this era of music and these club scenes and everything that feel you feel like you're there. It's almost like super uncomfortable, but then she kind of crashes back down to reality in that way that sort of Shane Meadows does. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of got, I'm really trying to keep to my, like the truth of how I want it to feel for people. Like they feel like they're actually there, like how we all felt when we were there. Um, there's a couple of moments which are pretty uh, grim. The storyline's pretty heavy, but it is a dark comedy. So that there, there is a lot of kind of, you know, you know, as we know, like if you laugh one minute and you're crying the next, then that's kind of what life is like. Um, But it's, yeah, there there are some amazing, there's going to be some amazing moments of euphoria that surround music. And there are going to be some hopefully very truthful moments surrounding grief. Um, But it's definitely all about music. And that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to pull off. Cool. Cool. Can't wait to see it. Yeah. Me me too. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So you're going to talk about, Paul is going to talk about, I talked about the year 2000. Paul is like, oh, press fast forward, the end. the end of the decade. So here we are. And all of the things that were supposed to be amazing and brilliant and fixed and we were supposed to all be better human beings. Did it happen? Well, I mean, like by 2009, uh, Gordon Brown was in power. <laughs> Barack Obama was in power. Oh, yay! Bit more of a positive. The Bitcoin network had been created. Grindr was launched to the public, like. It's just like <laughs> first the first grinder, yeah. grinder, yeah. Uh, on a plus plus side, we had the first international day of climate action. Not quite sure how much has changed since then. Maybe we need to revisit and refocus a little bit. But also, 
And <laughs> I just thought this was a little bit ironic that I read this today. Um, in 2009, we had another global p- pandemic, which was swine flu. That arrived in the UK in April, and by, I think it was autumn, the WHO declared it a pandemic. Do you know what I think scary when I read that? That was around for like 18 months, two years, and we had drugs to treat it. Don't say that. <laughs> I mean, like, look, let's stick with the positives anyway. Yeah. So the positives was, uh, two, I was going to say 2019, uh, 2009. Um, I'm going to talk about the XX and the album XX, which was released in 2009, which is one of my favourite albums, probably of that decade, to be honest. But I'll come back to that at the end of it. So they were signed to XL Records, which I didn't realise, via one of their imprint labels called Young Turks. And they came about that deal, similar to yourself, like um, after posting demos demos on MySpace, which I forget about how much of a big thing MySpace was in the noughties. Like, Like your band had a page, you had your own page. It was like, and it was kind of like the sort of, birth of social media almost of course social media where a lot of people are using it at least from my perspective so it's recorded in excel's in-house studio which was then they were the first band to go in oh crikey mic over i was just about to say careful paul of touching your mic and it's not sweating across the table game over (laughs) and they were like they were the first band to go in there so quite a lot of the equipment was bought with them in mind apparently it was absolutely tiny it's been described as about the size of a bathroom and some of the articles that I've read had a few pictures on, so I'll put those up there, and it is totally dinky. I mean, what this led was quite often they recorded guitars and bass in the hallway, not just for sort of size reasons, but also for acoustic reasons. And they played around a lot with, like, moving different instruments to different parts of a room, which in a room that size, I'm not quite sure how that would affect it, but it obviously did affect the acoustics. And spent, like, a huge amount of time getting the sound right, because they sort of felt that they had... They had their sound sorted. They just needed someone that could help them to record it rather than try to change it. And they'd been through a couple of producers to get to this stage. So they sort of did know what they want. They wanted they wanted to leave space within the tracks, which I think that for me, I think when I heard the album, I thought that was quite brave. Mm. Um, like to leave that amount of space and to have the guts not to try to fill up everything with a lead and just to let the song breathe but, almost yeah there weren't there weren't a lot of records doing mm. that at that time and I think I think now you know when people look back at the the XX I don't think they really appreciate that aspect of it really I think that's what makes it special to be yeah. honest no 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 I agree mm. yeah and because they had this sort of big idea about their own sound, they they produced it themselves. I mean, they had people working with them, obviously, but a lot of the production was done by them. They didn't really want this sort of polished, beautiful, finished kind of article. I mean, a couple of things I found out. So, like, for example, in Shelter, there was a screw or valve that came loose and there was, like, a real sort of rattling sound within the amp and they just, they liked it. They liked the way it sounded. It was, like, another layer of percussion they added to it. On Infinity, somehow... I don't quite know how you do this in a studio, but um, Ollie, the male singer, was had turned the microphone around somehow and was singing to the back of the mic. And they were just like, wow, this sounds awesome. So there were a lot of sort of happy accidents, but they were never going in there trying to make a beautifully sort of polished, synthetic almost album. And I think it sounds great for it. I think that album does sound mm. polished, though. Do you know, like it, it doesn't, I'm not, when I say polished, it's not like it's, it's soulless and mm-hmm. dead sounding, which you know, some pop records sound like, but that, that it sounds purposeful. Like, mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's not mm-hmm. like this kind of loose sort of grunge sound is everything going to fall apart. It sounds 
perfectly formulated. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's polished, great, polished great. isn't the right word I should be using, but they were they were quite open to going in there and things going wrong and being like, okay, well, let's go with it. Sounds good. I mean, it, it wasn't an immediate success and I was really surprised when I read that and I was more surprised that none of the singles they released got above 30 in the charts. Really? Yeah, that's really surprising because I just feel like everyone was talking about them all the time during that time. But they were massively hyped, which I, you know, I think is, is sometimes not a great thing for a band that's kind of, as you say... Mm like experimenting, finding where they are. They've got this album yeah. and suddenly it takes off and they're the, the next big... Like bands just don't seem to be allowed to exist. Either you're under the radar or mm-hmm. they take one band and try and kill them with... with, with uh... do, you, do you think that that's the media? Because I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, but wanting to pigeonhole things yeah. and not allowing artists artists to just be and grow in their own way. It's like you can't just be good. It's like that's it. They're, they're they're the thing. That's it. Let's all focus on that one thing. They did actually start off. I say quite slow. I mean, like in the first week, they sold four thousand copies. By the time it came to similar to your story, the Mercury Music Prize the following year, they sold one hundred twenty five k, which isn't it isn't like insignificant by any stretch of the imagination. After winning the Mercury Music Prize, their sales rose by 450% the following day, which is absolute what? insanity. So anyone who slags off the Mercury Music Prize, you know what? <laughs> like, if you, I'd quite like to win it. 450%. I mean, it led the lead singer to say that she was like terrified at the levels of attention they were getting. It was just like, where has this come from? I think I remember that, actually, that they seemed almost a little bit intimidated by their own success and they felt a little bit remember them saying in interviews that they felt too much pressure yeah yeah I mean that's that that's the thing I suppose especially if if you release something and it's slowly slowly you enter into this thing you have no view that you're going to win it and then suddenly zoom they also say that there's um the curse of the Mercury Music Prize for new bands don't they that if you're a new band and win it that's the only thing you're ever going to do which is not true but yeah um, I mean I've heard that one as well Maybe that's what we should do, the curse of the Mercury Music Prize. Yes. The curse of anything is a really good name. <laughs> Just make it up. Didn't you do the curse of American Samba or something like that? No, we didn't do that. No, we did. Um, yes, we did. The curse of San Francisco, which is where bands, when they play there mm-hmm. and they get big, they play San Francisco. It's their <coughs> their last their last gig ever, which is not true, obviously, because big bands go through all the time. But it sounds so dramatic, doesn't it? Sounds great. Like, you'd listen to that for sure. But the reason... Uh, sorry, going back to this, like, the reason why I particularly want to talk about this album is because this album kind of reminds me of a time in my life that was quite traumatic in a way. I'd just gone through, like, a really horrible, horrible breakup. And I don't know, maybe it's the sound levels in this album, maybe it's the subject matter, maybe... I don't know quite what it is, but this was the album that I put on when I was starting to feel okay or just wanted to be able to feel shit. And now whenever I hear this album, it kind of, it doesn't take me back to the feeling shit part. It takes it back to the part of like, you know what? It's going to be okay in the end. So it's my little kind of hug of an album almost. Yeah. Music soundtracks all of our lives, but there's certain albums and certain songs that can just put me back into a certain place and a certain mood and a certain feeling like that. So amazing. Isn't that incredible? Really powerful. Really powerful. I just think it's just amazing how you can listen to something and it can really make you feel better. Mm. It's like I have I have different different ends of the spectrum where I was 
I think I was up for about three days once after a party and we kept listening to television Marky Moon mm. <laughs> and now I just can't listen to it because it makes me feel really like takes me back to that horrible feeling that I had at sort of 7am in the morning but whenever I listen to um mm. Oh Baby by uh, LCD Sound System. Do you yeah, know that mm-hmm. song? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it just makes me feel, no matter how anxious or stressed or whatever, it just makes me feel immediately like everything's fine. <laughs> and it's, it's bizarre, like a meditation or something. I just think it's amazing. Wheatus's awful song, what's it, Teenage Dirtbag. Dirt when... As soon as Laura said that, oh, I was thinking God. of you. <laughs> yeah, we had a night out in, we did like a friend's weekend away in Blackpool and really sort of burnt ourselves out Go to first. the best places. And we went to the flamingo, <laughs> the pink flamingo. <laughs> and uh, I have to say, I wasn't wasn't quite, um, not necessarily drunk, but I was, I was up for a very long time um, after that night out. And when I was trying to go to sleep, the only thing that kept playing over my... In my brain was, I've got two tickets for Iron Maiden. <laughs> and anytime I feel sick, anytime I feel sick, like as in ill, gonna vomit, that song, that song plays in my brain. So I, you know, if anyone wanted well, to torture me, it's like that on repeat and I'll just vomit. It's just, yeah. It's, it's grim. It's grim, those memories. <laughs> well, at least I've got a happy one. <laughs> Uh, on repeat, on repeat. It's so annoying it's anyway. Like, Stop. Oh, oh my yeah. God. <laughs> <laughs> it was torture. It was torture. Um, is, that, is that the end of... The... That's the end of my little section, yes. Oh, Thank well you for done. listening, well girls. Right, so, so, but that's weird, wasn't it? They ended on a, a pandemic, but not, you know, the end of each decade. Yeah, maybe. There's, there's something. All right, okay. Well, um, I think that's the end of the show. I think that is that is the end of the show. If you've got a story that you'd like us to cover or new music you want us to play, please do drop us an email at rockpoprambles at gmail. We're also on patreon.com slash where we've got lots of exclusive content, so come and hang out with us there. Um, our guest today was the fabulous Laura, who's got a wonderful film that she's working on at the moment so please do check that out we will have um links to that so you can find out more information fingers crossed you get to make it towards the end of this year early Mm -hmm. next year everything goes to plan for everyone actually that's got stuff going on i hope we're not we're not in lockdown again we're all in the same boat for sure exactly exactly so um i suppose i suppose that's the end of the show Thank you so much for coming yes, on. Thank you so much. Been thank you for you. having me. I've had so much fun. Well, thank you. And thank you to everyone that's that's been listening. And uh, yeah, over and out. <laughs>